one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast brought to you by CJP Economics, a collaboration between Jim Power and Chris Johns, where we discuss the intersection between politics, finance, and economics. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found at our Substack website, and that Substack site also contains our extensive body of written work. Thanks for listening and reading. If you like our work, please share with your friends and sign up to our newsletter. Today is the 20th anniversary of 9-11, and I think it would be remiss of us not to talk about it. Um, it was the most, I, I guess, the most cataclysmic event uh, that most of us would have experienced in our lives. Can you tell me a little bit about your memories? I was working in London at the time for a European investment house. I was eating my lunch. I'd gotten a sandwich, eaten it at the desk as was and I suspect still is common practice in those kinds of businesses. I had a Bloomberg terminal open up on my PC. Bloomberg for our non-financial readers is a source of news and market prices, market action that everybody in financial markets use. And the bottom of the screen, the time at least, and I suspect today, were scrolling headlines. So it was a news service. And if it was an important headline, it was highlighted in red. And I remember vividly eating my sandwich, and this headline came up in red, Plane Hits World Trade Center. And my immediate thought, as I think a lot of people at the time thought, blimey, some poor single-engined prop plane like a Piper Cherokee or something like that had accidentally been flying up the river and had hit the World Trade Center, taking a wrong turn. Didn't think too much of it until just a couple of minutes later, or really almost instantly, Somebody switched over the television screens, which are all over the dealing rooms, switched over to CNN. We saw the pictures of the smoke coming out of the one tower at that time that had been hit. The news started to filter through that it was actually a jet aeroplane. And of course, we had no idea what was going on. 
really until the second plane went in and all our worst fears were confirmed. Operating in financial markets at the time, you knew that there was going to be a huge financial market reaction. But, you know, that seemed almost crass. And I remember having a conversation with the big boss of the firm. And we used that word. We said, look, if we start talking to people about how this affects economies and markets, that is going to seem very crass. But but it is our job. But of course, we were all thinking about the wider geopolitical implications. We didn't at the time know who did it. We knew that there were going to be mass casualties, but we had no idea how many. Then, of course, the towers collapsed one after the other. And it began, I suppose, to become even more serious. And then I remember the headline coming up, plane hits Pentagon. The words that George Bush was subsequent to, subsequently to use came to my mind, which was, gosh, this is really is America under attack. And I was tasked with speaking to getting up on the microphone. It's the way these businesses are structured, a big dealing room. They may have been four or 500 people sitting in this giant trading floor. And they have a microphone where important announcements, usually of an economic or a financial kind, are announced by an individual who's deemed to be an expert. God help me, I was deemed to be the one person that had to say something about the consequences of what we were seeing unfolding on our TV screens. And so I began with the words, it seems almost crass, or it does seem crass to talk about the financial market implications of all of this, the economic implications of all of this. I've been instructed, as I had been by the boss, to stick to facts, what we knew, and to keep the opinions down to a minimum, if, if not to eliminate them altogether, because this is not, in a time, not a time to be opinionated. And I made some very obvious, almost anodyne comments that this would hit markets very hard, that this would hit sentiment, economic sentiment very hard. It was not possible to be anything other than negative, certainly about the short-term economic consequences and therefore the markets. And of course, as it turned out, that was right, but only for about 10 minutes. Because you might remember, Jim, that markets went down heavily when they subsequently reopened a little while later, but then for a while rallied very strongly in what was called at the time a patriotic rally. That too, it lasted a bit longer than the initial downdraft, but the, that, that rally, that patriotic rally didn't last either as, as the market was actually in the middle of a bear market that had started earlier in March 2000, the previous year with the bursting of the tech bubble. That bear market really continued until the early part of 2003. It had another good few legs to go before it decisively turned. And the way the markets of that period, the noughties, if you like, went is that from the bursting of the tech bubble through 9-11 through to March 2003, which is about three years, there was a bear market, equity markets went down, then they went up until the start of the great financial crisis in, I think, 2006-07. And then they went down until 2009. And really, they've been rallying ever since. It's been one of the great rallies ever, ever since March 2009. Flights were grounded. None of us could travel. There were lots of rumors about in London where I was, the RAF was in the air. And, I, and this is where memory can let you down. I, can't, I don't remember whether I actually saw some RAF jets flying up and down the Thames protecting British airspace. But it was very fe febrile at the time. People were very, very worried. I knew, I knew people who were in the towers Thankfully, the ones I knew got out. I'd been in the towers only a few weeks previously, just at a business meeting. I'd been in the World Trade Center many times in my career for, for business purposes. So, you know, it wasn't that personal for me, but, but there were personal aspects. When flying resumed, you might remember that all planes 
in America were grounded for a long period of time. When they reopened, I had occasion to go over on business into the States. I didn't fly directly into New York, but on that trip, I flew from somewhere in the States to LaGuardia in New York. And the way the flight path was working at that time, it took me directly over the site and seeing it on a clear sky, out of a clear sky, flying over it. It was, it was quite horrific, even though they'd begun the clear up. And it, it really brought it home to me. And I wandered down to have a look to the extent that you could. And again, it was, it was extraordinary, the, the sorts of things, the sights that one saw, the people still putting up pictures of relatives that had gone missing. It was an extraordinary time. Of course, it's, you know, it, it has resonance today. The pullout from Afghanistan is directly related, as we know, to those, to those events. I worked in um, pension fund management here in Dublin, and um, I was out for lunch. And on my way back, um, I picked up a story that there was something bad going on, got back, looked at my Bloomberg screen, saw the headlines starting to come up. Uh, the first thing I did actually was to ring my brother in San Francisco, which at some unearthly hour of the morning to, I'm not sure why I rang him because he was in the United States and, you know, it did seem like the US was under attack. So um, that was quite extraordinary. Uh, like yourself, I had been in the World Trade Center about three weeks previously. And um, if you remember, the security getting in there was very stringent. Uh, yeah, that's un that was unusual for New York, wasn't it? I always remember going into the World Trade Center. It was one of the few buildings where security was tight. And I, we were told we had to take our passports. And of course, that was a, a direct consequences of the attack that had been made on the World Trade Center, I think in 1993, um, masterminded by the same guy, they think, as, as eventually masterminded the, the awful t attacks that succeeded. The, the, the 93 attacks were car bombs. So it was one of the few buildings in New York that had London-style security. London security was for different reasons, of course, um, not least because of, of IRA terrorism, but or for other reasons as well. Um, but buildings in New York at the time were amazingly unprotected. You could get into them very easily. Yeah, I, I had my photograph taken and you're handed a credit card type ID. So I still have those two cards from wow. my visits to World Trade Center 1 and 2 on that occasion. So I, 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 having been there so recently, um, it really resonated with me. But um, the other, uh, a couple of days later on the Thursday, I was due to do a broker presentation in Galway. And back in those days, uh, the Dublin to Galway road was dreadful. It was a four-hour journey if you were lucky. So thanks to Air Arnon, we used to be able to fly down. But I remember getting on the Air Arnon flight in Dublin Airport sort of looking around to see who was on the flight. There was this absolute fear of everything at this stage and subsequent discussions with my brother in San Francisco over the following days. Um, the Golden Gate Bridge, for example, was under heavy guard at that stage because there was a rumor out there it was going to be the next attack. Um, it certainly has forever changed travel. Um, you know, getting on an airplane, going to an airport, has dramatically changed ever since that day. Um, like yourself, I was called upon very quickly to make some sort of an assessment about the economic impact and uh, hard to do in a situation like that. And, and But, you know, one sense was that when a nation is hit with that sort of psychological shock, there would be at least an, a very negative initial reaction. 
um, as people sort of stayed indoors and didn't get out engaging in economic activity. Um, we did see a very strong reaction from the Federal Reserve uh, to provide liquidity to the markets and so on. But the interesting thing, and this, I guess, is one of the things that makes economic forecasting so difficult. Economics is a social science. It is driven by human behavior. And I think very quickly in New York, there was a sense that New Yorkers were going to get out there starting to live life as quickly as possible, starting to spend money. So the overall economic impact was quite muted. But the psychological scarring effect uh, still resonates, obviously, and we're hearing a lot about it um, over the last couple of days in in the run-up to the 20th anniversary. So my memories are, you know, they're very clear. There was confusion, there was fear, and you really did wonder uh, what was going to happen next. And uh, I, I think it definitely changed the way we all view the world in many ways. We're still arguing, we being the various political and analytical communities, about whether the aftermath of all of that, was it a success? Uh, was it a failure? There was an article in the London Times written by a guy called Gerard Baker, took the view that the terrorists won and that the, the planes taking off from Kabul airport was the, you know, the, the single biggest indicator of that. But more generally, bin Laden, dead though he is, got what he wanted, which was a, a very divided America subsequently. More importantly, perhaps, or as important, a very divided West. The unity that was shown by the West initially, because even Putin offered military support to America, uh, that's all gone, of course. And we have great world power division, we have division within countries. I think it's a bit of a stretch personally to attribute it all to the terrorists of, of, of that and subsequent times. But it kind of feels that there's something in that to me. The Economist has taken a slightly different tack this week, a more nuanced view in that, yes, there have been obvious failures and disappointments in that time. But America is still the world's dominant power. The West is still just about together as an entity and provided the right things are done going forward, all is not lost. I don't know about you, Jim, but I feel a, a little bit bleaker than that. I'm not sure that all is lost, actually. Maybe I'm just feeling tired. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it definitely has contributed to a massive, massive sense of polarization and divisiveness around the world. As you say, Afghanistan, or what's happened there in recent weeks, um, is a direct result of all of that. And um, it certainly, we have been incredibly upbeat since February about what Biden was doing in terms of fiscal policy, in terms of international relations and so on. And you just wonder, is the Afghan situation going to spell basically the end of his presidency as a strong innovative presence, presidency as it was starting to look like? Um, so, you know, it's it still resonates. And um, I would definitely think that in a geopolitical sense, the world has never been more polarized and divided, um, or at least um, not since the Second World War or indeed the First World War. But there's an incredible sense of polarization and mistrust out there. And if you look at the relationship between uh, the United States and Europe, which Trump seriously damaged, you look at the relationship between the States and Russia, Russia and the European Union, China and the States, um, and indeed China and the European Union at this juncture. So we, we really do have a, a lot of global superpowers and not so superpowers 
really at each other's throats at the moment. So I'd have a pretty bleak view, I have to say, also in, in, in terms of where it all leaves us. And um, it may be a stretch. I don't think it is, actually. You can trace all of this back to the events of 9-11 and what that represented. I, I think we will be living with the consequences for a long time to come. Let's hope that our, our bleak feelings are, are just that and that the extent to which they're able to forecast the future, are, are as, as with all forecasts, with, with something we've, we've discussed many times on this podcast, completely and utterly wrong. There are reasons to be optimistic, but perhaps we'll leave those for another day because this is a sombre day, not least to remember the 3,000 people who died on that day and all of their friends and relatives who must be feeling dreadful today. And I think it's important to, um, in our small way, to, to acknowledge what they must be feeling. Yeah, I, I often wonder, Chris, um, about the people I would have met over the years in the World Trade Center in various organizations did they survive? I have absolutely no idea. So yeah, it is likewise. somber stuff. Yeah. Let's leave 9-11 there in an appropriate place, remembered and honoured in, 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 with respect to the dead and their families, and return to more prosaic things. I know that you've been looking at various aspects of Budget 2022 this week. What's going on there? I, we are in the run-up, and it's always a bit of a phony war with lots of false flags, uh, lots of people putting in submissions for the budget, countless words in newspapers about what might or might not be in the budget, and politicians, not least themselves, the finance minister included, and everybody else sticking their oar in. So what's the state of play, Jim? Well, the Minister of Finance, Pascal Donoghue, made some uh, strong interventions this week in relation to the budget situation. He was speaking at the launch of a report by IFAC, which is a professional services organisation uh, with a heavy focus on the agri-food sector and farmers. But Pascal Donoghue was launching or, or speaking at the launch of a report on their behalf. And he spoke about the impact of COVID-19 on the economy and he pointed out that the state has had to borrow 34 billion euro more than was planned pre-COVID. This clearly sets an interesting backdrop for the budget that is going to be delivered on Tuesday, October the 12th. In July, the Minister for Finance, well, the Department of Finance published the summer economic statement. And that summer economic statement we spoke about in this podcast, but it's an update on how the economy and the public finances are projected to evolve over the next five years or so. But in that summer statement, there was a specific uh, focus on what the budget might contain on October 12th, at least in a a monetary sense. Uh, The core budgetary package that was announced in the summer economic statement was $4.7 Um, Of that, only one and a half billion is available for budget day measures with one billion on extra spending and 500 million in changes to taxation. And and the point, of course, is about the summer economic statement. Pascal Donoghue said um, earlier this week that despite the buoyancy of tax revenues and Irish tax revenues are incredibly buoyant in the first eight months of the year. And indeed, coming into this year, the Department of Finance, in last year's budget, they had uh, budgeted for a deficit of $20.5 billion this year. And certainly, on my estimate, it's going to come in under $17 billion. And how far under will really depend on uh, tax revenue buoyancy over the remainder of the year. 
and you know november is an important month for tax revenues but the deficit is going to come in significantly lower than budgeted for however uh, the minister of finance said that the budget he is preparing will continue to be based on the assumptions made in the summer economic statement i have often said that i believe there shouldn't be an annual budget uh, that budgetary policy should really evolve over the year and as circumstances change, it should be tweaked. But of course, that is never going to happen. We will get massive media hype, massive political hype before and after the budget. Uh, there will be numerous forests um, cut down, you know, lots of gigabits used in um, covering the budget. But at the end of the day, it is all a little bit of a nonsense um, budgets generally, there are some exceptions like 2009, but budgets generally don't change very much. It's a tweaking um, and we are talking about relatively small sums of money. Um, but, you know, having having said that, uh, it is clear that, you know, it will attract a lot of attention. And um, I, from my perspective, looking in at it, I think the key imperatives or backdrop factors that will shape the budget and that will have to be taken into account will be um, number one weaning the economy off the COVID supports particularly um, the pandemic unemployment payment and the other employment wage subsidy scheme lending support to the indigenous component of the economy um, much of which particularly the SME part of it is left with a significant debt legacy on a number of fronts as a result of COVID. So addressing that part of the economy, um, I think looking at the shortages of labour in certain sectors, particularly in the hospitality sector. So efforts are going to have to be made to try and incentivize people to work in those sectors. There will obviously be the imperative to restore order to the public finances. And Pascal Dono, who said this week that his intention is that over the next two budgets, he is going to uh, get rid of all of that excessive borrowing that occurred as a result of um, COVID-19. Obviously, the budget, well, nothing is obvious. I shouldn't use the word obviously, but the budget will have to take account of the ongoing and growing threats to the corporation tax situation uh, because we, Mark Paul in yesterday's Irish Times had a couple of really good pieces about the corporation tax situation. Um, he had interviews with a, a couple of guys who are very influential from an international perspective um, in relation to the corporate tax situation. And, um, you know, they, they both firmly believe that Ireland is a tax haven. OK, so anyway, the, the budget is definitely going to have to be factoring in uh, the likely threat to corporation tax receipts over the next two or three years. And of course, the other issue then will be climate change uh, and particularly as it relates to transport. But you're, you're going to see, I think, um, a lot of small measures in the budget to try and move the climate change agenda forward. So to me, in a nutshell, those are the things that the budget will have to address. But of course, as I said, I believe the budget is much to do about nothing um, what we will end up seeing is um, a very small amount of money spread over a, a lot of different people and sectors of the economy, and it won't make any real difference. A specific question about the environment, Jim, and carbon taxation in particular. 
I know there are lots of suggestions about quite technical arrangements to do with border adjustment taxes and all that sort of thing. But of course, each country is free to put whatever carbon tax it wants on things like petrol and diesel. And one of the suggestions to avoid what happened in France is that carbon taxes should be revenue neutral. I don't know how familiar you are with this. In You've got the yellow vest pro- protests in France that were sparked mostly by people on low incomes protesting against high fuel prices. And the suggestion is, well, the way you deal with that is that you keep putting taxes up on petrol and diesel and other car- carbon-based, fuel, fossil-based fuels, but you, you find mechanisms to return those revenues to people on, on low incomes. There was an increase in the uh, carbon tax on fuel um, introduced in budget 2021. Um, and at the same time, uh, the fuel allowance and so on was increased for people on low incomes. So the Irish government in last year's budget very much tried to uh, offset the pain from higher carbon taxes on lower income households uh, by trying to compensate. So for many lower income households, it, it was a net neutral effect. OK, um, but of course, the opposition at the time, and particularly those on the left um, and those in the poverty industry, if you want to call it that, uh, were up in arms about it. You know, they were de- decrying the increase in carbon tax. But, um, you know, the, the Irish government, I think, is very aware of the need to make sure that you don't create fuel poverty as a result of increases in carbon tax. And I think that there is, you know, we, we, we have planned over the next few years a significant increase in carbon taxes, which I certainly would be supportive of. But also there is a clear recognition, I think it will happen, that lower income households will be uh, protected from that uh, as much as possible. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I think the Irish government gets it, to be honest. It's good to know. I mean, of course, one of the things about all of that is that, you know, everybody has to cut down on carbon, rich and poor people, and giving people money um, that they would otherwise have been, you know, tax- their taxes. Uh, they're, they're, you're talking about a significant chunk of the population, the lower incomes, who, who certainly via the price mechanism, don't have much incentive to cut back on carbon if, if, if they're being handed money to, to compensate them. So I, I suspect we're going to have to come up with fancier mechanisms or different devices to encourage everybody to cut back on carbon in, in, in ways that are, are, are effective. So I think if you give, give away with one hand what you take with the other, you might be surprised by the outcome. Let's move on to another favourite of ours, Jim, inflation and in interest rates, because we in that spirit of higher carbon taxes, energy prices are going up on their own, let alone whether or not there's going to be higher taxes on them. The headline in the FT on Friday was that US economists now think that interest rates in the States, because of the inflation picture, caused not least by energy, but lots of other things, are going to go up. One of the more interesting pieces of data for us data geeks, data anoraks, is that for the first time, I'm not sure whether it's forever, or whether it's just for a very long period of time. Wage increases in the States now for the last three months have been um, concentrated very, very much at the lower end. So this suspicion that I've had that a lot of what Biden is up to is trying to get wages up for the lower paid is actually starting to happen. But of course, the, 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 the corollary, if you like, of higher wages for the lower paid is inflation. We've got that. So I think it's deliberate. We'll see. It looks like expectations for interest rates in the US at least are shifting, but probably not in Europe. We've had Christine Lagarde 
the president of the European Central Bank, channeling Margaret Thatcher this week, saying the the lady is not for tapering, echoing Margaret Thatcher's long ago remark that the lady is not for turning. So the the European Central Bank certainly are not muttering about interest rate rises next year, are they? No, absolutely not. Uh, The the, the European Central Bank is still extremely relaxed because uh, I think there's a recognition that coming into COVID, the Eurozone economy was struggling, that there was quite a bit of spare capacity. Uh, COVID has obviously exacerbated that situation. And um, the ECB clearly believes there's enough spare capacity um, in the euro area to justify ongoing bond buying and low interest rates for the foreseeable future. Here in Ireland, it was interesting. I, I mentioned earlier on, about the Minister for Finance speaking at the launch of a report by IFAC. IFAC, the report was interesting in the sense that it was a survey of agri-food companies and 71% of the agri-food companies surveyed reported increased costs. Um, They allude to transport costs, they allude to energy costs, which clearly feed into transport costs directly and indirectly, and raw materials and packaging, all those costs rising. Uh, They attribute those rising costs to the rebound we're seeing after the lockdown, supply chain blockages, which we've spoken about. Some of those related to Brexit. Oil prices have increased dramatically in the last 15 months. But the bottom line is that for those agri-food companies facing significantly higher input costs, uh, the, the clear risk is that this feeds into higher food inflation. And last week, we spoke about the increase in electricity and gas bills that people here in this country and elsewhere will be facing into coming into the winter. Well, according to this IFAC survey, we could see the same thing coming through on the food front. Yesterday, the Central Statistics Office published the latest consumer price inflation numbers for Ireland uh, relating to August. The headline rate has jumped to 2.8%. And that is the highest rate achieved since November 2011. Okay, 2.8 is a low rate of inflation in the overall scheme of things. But when you get a headline like the highest rate since November 2011, and if you look at a breakdown of where the price increases are coming, and there is a common theme here, transport costs are up by 10.2%. And that's largely down to petrol, diesel, air travel and motor car costs actually are up. And I think the motor car cost increase is largely down to uh, semiconductor scarcity um, and the lack of supply of cars, putting upward pressure on prices. But anyway, transport made a very significant contribution. Housing, water, electricity and gas up by 7.3%. Most of that due to higher oil prices. Um, However, housing, of course, continues to contribute and private rents were up by four and a half percent in the year to August. Restaurants and hotels prices up by three point four percent. And we are anecdotally, it is quite obvious that since the reopening, restaurant prices are starting to rise. Uh, But in the context of what IFAC was warning about, there is certainly no evidence whatsoever at the moment of inflation coming through on the food sector and in fact in the year to august food prices were up by just 0.1 percent between 
August 2011 and August 21, you know, that 10 year period, average food prices are down by 10.3%. So I, I think um, on the farming and agri food side of the equation, um, I think they would welcome higher food prices. Uh, clearly, consumers wouldn't be quite as amenable. But um, there is no food price inflation in the system at the moment. And it will be really interesting to see if those IFAC survey warnings will actually uh, come to uh, fruition. So a little bit of inflation in the Irish system. But, you know, most of it can be attributed to specific factors rather than an endemic inflation problem in the system. Yeah, if you get enough specific factors, you'll eventually get system-wide inflation, I guess. And so that's that's what we're looking for. In terms of the, uh, you talked in detail there about um, the actual data. I've only got one anecdote, which I can offer this week, which is that my local coffee shop here in the UK has had to move to opening, opening for half a day each day because of labour shortages. They can't get people to work. So the only way that's going to be resolved, one presumes, or at least a way of getting it resolved, is that they're going to have to pay their workers more if they if they want to open full time. And if they do that, they're going to have to put their prices up. And that particular anecdote, I think, is the debate over what happens next. Will the workers suddenly appear willing to work for current or slightly higher wages as all these pandemic employment assistance payments end in various economies? Have they disappeared for good because they found something better to do with their lives or something more more remunerated with their lives Um, or what? So I think that that's what that's what we're we're looking out for. Yeah, Um, I'd just like to ask you something. Um, I did a podcast earlier this week um, with Eamon Dunphy on the stand and he was questioning me about Brexit and the impact here in Ireland and more particularly the impact in the UK. And, you know, I, I was quite negative about the impact. Uh, there's a Goldman Sachs report out earlier this week suggesting that Brexit was costing the UK economy £600 million per week. Um, we see lots of issues in the UK with supply chain problems and so on. So I, I gave a pretty negative assessment of the impact of Brexit. Uh, but one of listeners to the podcast um, got in contact with me via social media, um, basically telling me that my perspective was too one-sided and that it wasn't quite as negative as I was suggesting. And one of the things he alluded to was the fact that, um, and I haven't been able to check this out, but that one of the impacts of Brexit is that blue-collar wages are starting to rise in the UK. And you know he would see that as a very positive thing, as would I, in terms of addressing inequality and so on. Does that figure? I think that there's anecdotal evidence. There's not economy-wide evidence of it happening yet. And one of the things that everybody is struggling with is what is causing what. Because we've had both Brexit and the pandemic happening at the same time. And the reason why there's worker shortages is is complicated. Uh, The US economy is reopened, but there are about two and a half million workers short. Why is that? That obviously has got nothing to do with Brexit. It's the United States we're talking about here. So in order to get their wages, you know, in order to get people into jobs, their wages are having to go up. Is, Is that a similar effect here or is it something else? But I do think that there are signs of a welcome increase in um, blue collar and other lower paid jobs. I think that is certainly happening at an anecdotal level. We haven't seen it happen 
um, in a sustained way economy-wide yet, but it, but it's certainly happening. Your more general point about the economy, I think that you're right. Uh, the best metaphor that I've seen used about Brexit in the economy is that it's like a slow puncture. It's not been a disaster for the UK economy, but it clearly is having an effect. And again, at the economy level, just as at the individual worker level, it's difficult to distinguish whether it's the pandemic, whether it's Brexit, or indeed whether it's something else that we haven't spotted. But the Goldman Sachs figure, I think, is a heroic effort to try and quantify this. It risks spurious precision. But I do note that the latest growth figures for the UK suggest that in July, the economy ground to a halt. Whether Again, is that Brexit? Is it the, is it the pand- pandemic? The pingdemic, as it's called over here, because workers are self-isolating? We just don't know yet. But I do think that it is eminently reasonable to say that Brexit is having an effect, it's negative, and that the economy is already a little smaller than it otherwise would have been. Yeah, Chris, in, in terms of, you know, we, we welcome wage increases for lower paid workers um, in, in the UK and indeed, if it were to happen here, uh, I suppose I would have one reservation about that. You know, many of those smaller businesses that are seeing wage pressures rising are not in a great financial place. They have a significant debt legacy in the aftermath of COVID-19 between tax deferreds, uh, between rents, commercial rates, um, bank interest charges, and so on. So there is quite a considerable legacy of debt. How will those businesses in the SME sector accommodate those sorts of wage increases? And of course, if they don't grant those wage increases, they won't be able to get the workers. So there's there's a bit of a conundrum here. And I suppose it does call for pretty specific government intervention to provide support to those SME companies that are struggling at the minute. Yeah, that, I think that merits a podcast all on its own, Jim, and, and we're running out of time. But what I would say is that, first of all, those companies do need support from the government in various ways, and I think various imaginative ways. I'd even consider some some debt relief, actually. A, a debt jubilee, as it's called, uh, is something that may well have to be considered. Another economic aspect of this is that they, firms are going to have to become more efficient. And one of the things that's been missing from the world economy, not just the Irish economy in recent years, has been productivity growth. And they're going to have to get more from their workers if they're going to stay in business and or they're going to have to put their prices up, and or they're going to have to go out of business. I mean, it's going to vary from individual business to individual business. It's very easy for me to trot out those those kinds of remarks. Um, Easy to say, very, very difficult to execute, of course. But I think that we should probably call it there, Jim. Uh, Okay, Chris. um, Can I just say, uh, you're in Cambridge today for a very special occasion. Uh, Your son has graduated from Cambridge, so have a good day. Enjoy it. Hope it goes I, very well. I appreciate yeah. that, Jim. I appreciate that a lot. And thank you. Yes, it, 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 is, it is a big special day for me personally. Thanks a lot. Cheers, Jim. Cheers, Chris. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please sign up to our Substack account, www cjpeconomics.substack.com You can download our podcasts on Apple, Spotify and other good podcast platforms. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style.